0: Girls5Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and
1: be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.
0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 127 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest is one of the most beautiful and talented young actresses working in Hollywood today, Emma Stone. The 28-year-old currently is the toast of the town for her portrayal of an aspiring young actress in La La Land. And as our conversation makes clear, the journey that her character takes over the course of that massively acclaimed film is not at all unlike the one that led her from Arizona to the Academy Awards. Since making her big screen debut a decade ago as a scene stealer in the raunchy comedy Superbad, the quantity and quality of Stone's work has been astonishing. She became a fan favorite thanks to her first solo leading role in 2010's Easy A. She helped to carry a blockbuster, 2009's Zombieland, and a comic book franchise through 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man and its 2014 sequel, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. She played key parts of the ensembles of 2011's Best Picture Oscar-nominated The Help and 2014's Best Picture Oscar-winning Birdman, garnering a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for the latter. She starred on Broadway from late 2014 through early 2015 in Cabaret, while anchoring Woody Allen movies in those same years. And she provided one half of a magical, modern-day, Astaire and Rogers-like screen couple in three hit films opposite Ryan Gosling. 2011's Crazy Stupid Love, 2013's Gangster Squad, and most recently, 2016's La La Land, which has been nominated for a record-tying 14 Oscars, among them one for her in the category of Best Actress. I sat down with Stone at the Biltmore Hotel in Santa Barbara, and over the course of our conversation, she and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how acting helped her to overcome the debilitating anxiety that she suffered as a kid, what led to her moving out to Hollywood at the age of 15, which filmmaker encouraged her to begin dyeing her natural blonde hair red, how she grew as an actor through working with everyone from Jonah Hill to Alejandro Gonzalez in Yari too. why, despite her Broadway experience, she required a lot of convincing that she was capable of starring in Damien Chazelle's original movie musical, what some of the specific ways were in which she and her collaborators poured their hearts and souls into La La Land, and what she makes of its phenomenal success, and so much more. It's a fun hour with an amazing young star, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. And to begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix, and my dad was general contractor, and my mom originally worked in publicity, basically, but then just became my, my not just became, it's a tough job to <laughs> raise my brother and me, but was was our mom. Yeah. Right.
0: So I was trying to do some homework value you, prepare for this. So I read, and I'm sure there may be things that I came across that are not correct, so fix that if I say anything wrong, but I read that you had a lot of sort of anxiety issues as a kid, and that the only way they started to really go away was when you found acting as an outlet. Is that fair to say?
1: That's, well, it's fair to say, but it's also, my brother has, has recently redrawn my attention to what I was like before the anxiety hit, which was... <laughs> putting on a lot of shows that he had to play a lot of parts in. Yeah. So around, you know, four or five, I was definitely singing and dancing and putting on shows and was, I think in, in his words, bossy, which now is a, you know, a banned word right. from the kind of female vernacular. Right. I was just very focused, okay. Okay. but anxiety hit me pretty hard around six or seven. And yeah, I had my first panic attack when I was seven. So then that locked me up for a couple of years and, I remembered I was in my first grade play and that was so fantastic. And then I had a couple of years of a, a, a pretty rough ride.
0: Like it was debilitating. It was debilitating. Yeah. So what was it though? That was that first grade thing was like a, a actual turning point there was in terms of just you immediately responding to being a performer or what was it about that that appealed to you?
1: That that was my first time being legitimately on stage in elementary school in mm-hmm. the cafetorium. Yes. You know, <laughs> so I think it was a combination of factors. I think that performing had always been something just really fun for me and that sort of came came naturally in a sense from from a young age. But I think being with the I mean, all the kids were older than me in the play. They were all in fifth grade and I was in first grade. So there was that kind of instant feeling of being, you know, with the older cool kids. (laughs) And I had seen a tape back a couple years ago, and I'm just, you know, staring at the girl that plays my sister and just doing exactly what she does. And I just, the biggest smile on my face because I just, I I don't know. I just had such a blast. It was just something that totally transported me. And
0: you could uh, get out of your own. I was so present. Yeah, Yeah, it was,
1: it was so much fun. And then, you know, audience reaction and laughter or anything like that was just really, I, I, I just loved the feeling of the energy of the room.
0: So it seems like once you started doing it, you really knew that this was what you wanted to do. And the question that I had is if you can brief us on a couple of these presentations that I read about, there were a couple of moments where you really went to bat for your, for your cause.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was one when I was, when I was about 12, after my sixth, I went to, to public elementary school Mm -hmm. and the first year of public school, middle school. And I made a little presentation for my parents because I had started acting at Valley U Theater in Phoenix and doing the plays. And I, Kind of, I asked to be to be homeschooled. Mm
0: -hmm. How was that received?
1: It was received. You know, it it took a lot of, I think, conversation amongst them. And then, as a student, I was a perfectionist and I really wanted to get good grades and very very uh, hard on myself, which you can probably imagine with an anxious kid. Mm -hmm. Even if I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing, I was very obsessed with with getting it right, and so. I loved learning, but there were other things that I really, you know, wanted to focus on. And I was so, so into acting Mm -hmm. that I really wanted to do a bunch of plays. So that was kind of my, my pitch. And then I was homeschooled for two years, which thankfully, because I don't think, and then I ended up going back to an all girls Catholic private high school. Mm -hmm. And within the first semester, I sort of was struck with this, this thought of moving to (laughs) Los Angeles. I was an insane kid. So long story short, you guys. You you had vision for
0: a kid. (laughs) I mean, this is pretty amazing.
1: (laughs) It was uh, a lot. And that was
0: presentation number two.
1: And that was presentation number two. Yeah. When
0: I was 14. And the argument there was like, mom, I need you to pack it up and join me or or what? Well,
1: I... we'd had someone who's like our big sister named Chrissy Spencer and I, my brother and I, and she's 11 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And so she was in her mid twenties at this point. And so the idea was, Hey mom, we could just go for pilot season. I mean, although I didn't really know what pilot season was (laughs) at this point. So it was really just let's move to LA, but she was like, okay. So once we looked at it, she didn't say okay right away. It took a long time, (laughs) but once we looked into it, we understood what pilot season was, which sort of gave it, a shorter window you right. know maybe we'll just be there for three months and so she would come out for a week and then Chrissy would come out for the next week and she'd be home with my brother yeah and my dad you know was with my
0: brother yeah. in Arizona so you're 15 when you first get out to LA and just because there are obvious parallels with La La Land let's just if we can set the scene a little bit yeah where were you living Park La Brea right these are <laughs> sort of these like what two bedroom apartments near near Hollywood yeah and you moved out with or without representation.
1: I part of the the rule that my parents had put in place was that I was not going to move to LA without representation. If it was going to happen, right. we needed to figure that out first. So it wasn't just you know just kind of sitting in an apartment right. as a fifteen year old twiddling your thumbs, yeah. being homeschooled. <laughs> right, yeah, right. exactly. So I. Worked with an acting coach in Arizona who had some ties to this that kind of a kids agency right. in Los Angeles. And I went in and did, you know, a dramatic monologue and a comedic monologue yeah. for them. And they they signed me and they sent me out for the first couple of months.
0: And those first couple of months, how did they go?
1: Nothing happened. Not like, I mean, right. I I went in and auditioned for probably any sitcom you can imagine. And then none of that worked out. And so they just stopped sending me out.
0: So how did you get the extension basically beyond pilot season? What was the conversation there?
1: I was just really pretty, again, focused, I mm-hmm. guess, mm-hmm. on... It just felt deep down as as kind of strange as that is to be a kid on your own out there because I really didn't have a ton of friends mm-hmm. out there or I really didn't know many people. I just really, really felt that this eventually somehow would come, together. come together. And so I said please can I please can we keep doing this and there was enough faith built up that I really truly meant it yeah. at that point so I got a job at a dog bakery
0: which is uh the which, farmer's market yes this is like basically making food for dogs right? this is
1: making food for yes. dogs yes. yes and then my mom saw a commercial on tv for a reality search competition for the new partridge family yes. and I hadn't been on an audition at this point I think in two or th- like probably two months and she said I really have. And my mom has never done this before and never has again. <laughs> she said, I really, really have a good feeling about this for some reason. And I was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I am not going to do that. And she was like, just go to this audition. Right. Let's see. Because I have this weird feeling. Right. And so I did.
0: That was the first one you booked.
1: That was in search of the new Partridge the family.
0: auspicious a- 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 starts. That's yeah. right. So, When and why did Emily Stone, which I believe is your actual name, become Mm -hmm. first Riley and then Emma? What was this evolution?
1: So when I first went to get my SAG card, Emily Stone was taken. And so they, you know, suggested Emily J. Stone or Emily Jean Stone, which is my middle name. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, as a a 16-year-old at this point, I was like... Or I can pick a brand new yeah. name. And how cool is that going to be? I mean, ask any 16-year-old right. if they want to pick right. a new name legally. Right. It's probably a yes. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't mean to speak for all of you if okay. you're 16 out there and you love your name. But I was like, Emily, everybody's got that name. Right. So I chose Riley, mm-hmm. which is a cool-ass name. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I had it for a little bit. And I remember someone calling me on set. I did a guest part, I either on Malcolm in the Middle yeah. or, or Medium. Mm-hmm. And someone said my name and I was just totally, I had no idea who they were talking to. And so <laughs> I realized I needed to change it. And Emma was, you know, closer to Emily than right. than anything else. So I still prefer being called Emily.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. By your friend, that's what your friends and family call you. Yeah. Okay. I mean,
1: people could just call me M because it's an easier, right.
0: you know. Shorter. Yeah. So those, those first few jobs out there were, were on TV, kind of little parts on TV Malcolm in the Middle, as you mentioned, Life of Zack and Cody, some of these other things. I think probably more memorable for, for you and and certainly for Louis C.K. was something on Lucky Louis, right? Yep. You yep. were 16 and yep. had and to go in there and...
1: Had to go in there and, and offer to blow him. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you wanted Lewis, to say, but yes. you couldn't say it. Well, uh, you know. It was it was really... Uh, and he was so protective and sweet and right. just, you know, great about it. But, my God, it was an intense uh, thing for yeah.
0: a 16-year-old right. to be doing. And, on. by the way, at that point, Louis sitcom. C.K. wasn't, I mean, you know, what yeah. Louis
1: C.K. is. There. Yeah, and, it was the first, I think, ever totally uncensored sitcom mm-hmm. with a live studio audience. And, yeah, it was very interesting.
0: But So you were getting some, some traction here. But then, I guess, the big break, would you say, was when somebody who you'd been auditioning for for years, like finally comes up with something that actually, you know, I guess my sense was that you'd been auditioning without much clicking with this person, the the casting director, Alison Jones. And then how did the one that actually did finally work? How did that come to your attention that there was an opportunity?
1: She, I had auditioned for her. I want to say for the first time when I had moved, when I was 15. And I think quite, quite a few times over the years, there was a, pilot that I actually tested for, which is, that's what they don't tell you, that testing for a pilot is sometimes worse than getting a no on the first <laughs> time, you know, when you go in like three or four times and you really think this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And I remember testing for this pilot and really thinking it was going to work out. And Allison was so supportive and then it didn't. And I was just so bummed. And and so when I was 17, almost 18, after a couple of years, she called me in for a movie and I went in on a Saturday and she put me in, she put me on tape and she just said she had a good feeling about it. Again, those good feelings. You got to trust yeah, yeah. that good feeling. My mom had it, <laughs> right. it. And so she called me and it was, it was her super bad and ended up going and and improvising with Jonah. And which
0: by the way, was that something I know you had done a lot of comedy in the youth theater stuff, but was improvising something you were comfortable with.
1: Yes, there was an improv troupe at my youth theater. Okay. So, improv and sketch comedy was something that I I
0: just loved so, so much. this was a cool opportunity actually. It was fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean we we did the scene and then they kind of just, you know, asked us to go for it. So, I think yeah. for, you know, half an hour or something we were just kind of playing around with stuff and Judd was there, Judd Apatow was there and and Greg Matola, our director, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of this wild time and it honestly took months for it to come together. We did a table read with Jonah playing various male characters because I think they thought maybe he was too old or something for for Seth. And and then eventually it, it happened, but it took a couple months to, to really you, come to fruition. It took
0: a couple months for you to know that you had your part as well. Yes. Because that's yeah. another one where they could get your hopes yeah, up. Yeah, I think I, I
1: auditioned in, in yeah. April and we shot in like August or something. Wow. It was a while.
0: And that did really give you a great chance to show your... Abilities. And I think another thing that came out of that was that Judd Apatow kind of had a cosmetic suggestion about how you should move forward.
1: Well, Martha McIsaac, who is my best friend to this day, who played Becca in Bad, was brunette. Mm-hmm. And so Judd was like, well, you know, ah, oh, we got to make your hair red. And I was like, red? <laughs> and my mom's a redhead. So I was that was very, you know, I was like, all right, well, let's try it. That was the start of that. And now it's stuck on it's, me, uh, Yes, <laughs> but I, I am a
0: blonde. <laughs> fun fact. So in the aftermath of that, there were in fairly rapid succession, The House Bunny, Ghost of Girlfriends, Past Paperman, Zombieland, and then the one that I think you've described in, in other interviews as sort of like a turning point. It, seemed, it has to have been because you were now for the first time in basically every scene of a movie, and that was Easy A. And so I just wonder... You know, for people who haven't seen it yet, I I guess it's often described as like a modern version of The Scarlet Letter and your Hester and all of that. And I just wonder how early on did you see that was a special opportunity? Because I think you fought for the audition now.
1: Right away. I saw it right away. Yeah, yeah, I did. There was another, (laughs) I was fighting for it.
0: A presentational moment.
1: (laughs) I remember uh, Tom McNulty, who was a producer on a movie called The Rocker sent me over the script secretly, like early, early on. I think a year before they were even auditioning for it. And just said, I read this, and I, I really think you should you should take a look at this. It was written by Bert V. Royal, who wrote an amazing play called Dog Sees God. And it was so phenomenal. Yeah. I, I was just, I was like, this is, I, I'll i do anything. Yeah. And so I sat with that script for quite a while. And then, you know, and Doug Wald, who became my manager after the Partridge Family. I was introduced mm-hmm. to him after the Partridge Family. He had nothing to do with the production, but he's my manager <laughs> to this day. We just kept an eye on it, and it started. You know, the the auditions were kind of announced, and I was the first person to audition.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and was that a, a quicker yes for you on that one, or did you also have to wait forever to hear that about
1: happened? That? that happened relatively quickly. quickly. Yeah.
0: And the way it was made, it sounds like it was a little unusual. I read about cameras rolling for takes that were as long as 30 minutes why would that have been is that correct
1: on easy a yeah well we were shooting on digital so i think because will gluck who just became like my i mean i don't know how i would have survived that movie without will he was just the the greatest greatest partner and friend in the world he was constantly throwing things at me to try and say and while we were rolling and i mean god that footage is probably insane because we fought like cats and dogs in like a joking way, right, but, right, right. but we were like, we were like brother and sister. Yeah. So it's like, no, will no. <laughs> I think it's a cut at one point. I mean, just horrible. It was just madness. I was 20 and you know, out of my, out of my comfort zone, but it was really special because we had this kind of, this sort of freedom. I think, or I think maybe it was the first time that I'd ever had that experience of like just continually rolling and mm-hmm. and going for it. That and
0: you way. liked it. I did like it. Except, at times when you guys sounds like you may have <laughs> probably it's not fun to have people yell, yelling at you when you're acting or shouting no, correction at you no yep. it was actually yeah, great. it
1: was totally our, our relationship I appreciate it right. so much it was yeah he he understood Olive better than I ever I mean he he's the real Olive
0: right so <laughs> it was it was super helpful so the movie comes out very well received and it must have changed your life in a, in a major way because I would guess after that whatever anonymity you still had was was probably out the window right
1: well, it was it was funny because it went in stages after Superbad came out. People would say, did we go to school together? <laughs> or if they really, really could tell people. I remember someone shouting across a mall at me once. Hey, Jules, you DTF. <laughs> 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 but that was kind of the extent right. of it. You know, it right. wasn't ever really my name or anything yeah. like that. And then after a little bit of time, you know, after like Zombieland, right. there would be some kind of, you know, hey, uh, are you that girl from The Thing? Can you list <laughs> me your
2: filmography
1: and right. maybe I'll know some. <laughs> but after A, it was a little more, you know, yep. people would, would say my name. And it was very, very bizarre. Yeah, it was a very strange adjustment. And
0: did you get out of town after A? Is that when you moved to? I moved to New York. Yeah, and right after shooting A. Re- EZA? Was that a response to anything or you just were thinking about it anyway?
1: I don't think it was a response to any Anonymity concerns. Yes. Yes. I just felt a little. I'd, I'd always wanted to live in New York since I was a kid. I went to New York for the first time, I think, when I was when I was seven or eight in mm-hmm. that phase, yeah. with my mom to see plays, and it just felt like that was the that was the time that was the opportunity. I turned twenty one, and right. I've lived there ever since.
0: So, I guess probably as a result of EZA, but maybe it was independently. You had a very big two thousand eleven, the year after, where first of all, I think with crazy stupid love and then with the help both of which were huge hits and with crazy stupid love that was the first time i guess you probably crossed paths with ryan gosling right that was an audition or how did you were you guys i think there was some kind of chemistry read or something with you two wasn't there where you guys got to improv a bit
1: yes there was a there was a chemistry read where i came in and my voice was gone apparently I still could talk but I don't remember talking all that much and we were with John and Glenn the directors and we kind of just you know I remember reading a scene but Ryan had come up with this idea which made it into the movie of a dirty dancing lift and so in the room we did a little attempted dirty dancing lift I mean I don't think it was a full version of it because on the day I I, it really freaked me out and I couldn't actually go through with the lift it had to be a stunt double but there was the attempt and I think they just you know we got to improvise a little yeah. bit, and they just sort of felt our, I don't know, camaraderie,
0: I guess. And did you feel like it was anything unusual? Because, again, just to contextualize it for people, this would be the first of three. The second would be Gangster Squad and now obviously La, La did, So, I mean, did anything feel kind of like you guys were were working well together more than it would have with anyone else that time? Or did it take a little while?
1: I think it instantly—there was an instant ease— kind of, to our, our rapport, but I don't, I mean, I don't know, as I walked out of the audition room, another actress was walking in, so right. I was like, oh, well, all right, you know, never mind, that's, uh, right, right. I'm sure, you know, I mean, I think Ryan, someone, I read a quote one time that said, Ryan could have chemistry with a brick wall, <laughs> and I think that's very true, like, he makes it, he makes it very
0: easy. So, the the other one that I mentioned is The Help, which I would guess has got to be a very rare thing for you, where you're pretty much surrounded by women on a movie, which, has that happened at any other time in your career? To, certainly not to that degree, right?
1: No, I'm about to do a movie with women, which I'm very excited about. Which one is this? The favorite, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie oh, cool. I'm about to oh, shoot in awesome. London. And it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a pretty great female situation on that movie. But I, yeah, no, it's 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 been very rare.
0: And was the help, you know, in, in the making of it, anything special? You know, I, oh, I, I, a lot special. of probably people that were, became... It Seems like everybody became close on that one.
1: It was outstandingly special. I mean, yeah. still to this day, I speak to most of the people from wow. that movie, and
0: two of them are nominated with you this year, Viola so, and
1: Octavia. It's so crazy. Yeah. And Bryce was at the SAG Awards, yeah. and Jessica at the Golden Globes, and it's just it's just so much fun to see everybody. And, and this, I mean, it, we had a really really incredible experience, and also because we were in this little town in Greenwood, Mississippi. And we could bike to each other's houses and we were having this kind of great location based friendship, which can happen on movies when you're, you know, you're stuck in this little town, but you're not stuck at all because these are the people that you are spending all your time with. And it's just, it was like a, it was a joy. It's great. Bourbon and white wine spritzers (laughs) and too many
0: mosquitoes. (laughs) Well, not bad. a year later was, I believe your first time working with sort of a, a really within the big studio machine and. Doing CGI acting and doing some of those things when you agreed to do Spider-Man, this reboot of it. And I just wonder how that came about and what you made of it.
1: I don't think that wasn't like a an outlined goal to no. go and, you know, be part of a Spider-Man movie really? or or a really a, a kind of a superhero world in any way originally. And I had worked with Sony quite a few times on yeah. Superbad and House Bunny and Zombie Easy A, And so I knew them pretty well. And they had asked if I would come in and, and do a screen test. And I think I fought it for a little bit because I was like, I just don't you know, I don't know the comic that well. And I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. And then eventually I was like, all right, what's the harm in that? You know, you get to go act and why not? Mm-hmm. It's an audition. And so I went in and I auditioned with with Andrew mm-hmm. and with Mark Webb and it was a full on camera test. I mean, I was in the wig and a costume and we were on a, basically a set. Right. And I was acting with Andrew and I was just after that I was like, I can't imagine not doing right, this. Right. Like this is this is fantastic. You know, uh Andrew's such a ridiculously incredible actor. I Had mean you just
0: met at that people, yeah, test. at the
1: camera test. Okay. Yeah. And and it was just yeah, it just felt so exciting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So Andrew a few weeks ago was on this podcast and one of the things that he said was that it had been for him actually a lifelong dream to do Spider-Man because he'd grown up with it and early, you know, pictures of him in the costume and everything. But that very frustratingly for him, the making of it and the realization of it because of corporate considerations ended up being very frustrating and disappointing for him. He loved working with you. He he made that very clear, but the rest of it was was not what he expected. Could you relate to that?
1: I think my experience was different in a way because I wasn't in the suit. Mm-hmm. And his dedication to the character and the, the process of that kind of unfolding, he understandably had different pressures than I did. Gwen's story was always basically outlined to me. I, I knew what her story was in the comic. I knew that she was going to die in the second film. I knew... Sorry, spoiler (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, I die. But I, I had sort of a different challenge on the movie of of sort of you know embodying this woman and bringing her to life in a way that felt you know vibrant and connected to to that character. So I, in all honesty, I think what I sat with was very different Mm -hmm. than what than what he sat with, and I really enjoyed working with with Mark Mm -hmm. and with. Tolmac and and Avi and you know those that that crew was really was really fantastic and obviously Andrew yeah so maybe I had a, maybe I had a, a, a simpler road. Ahead yeah, of yeah. Me.
0: I read that you are someone who grew up worshiping Diane Keaton mm-hmm. and who is obviously the ultimate Woody Allen muse among other things. And so, what did it mean to you to to get the chance? I guess pretty much right after the, the Spider Man movies to work with him as as his newest, you know, leading lady in back to back movies, Magic in the Moonlight, and then Irrational Man. And by the way, I think Magic in the Moonlight got a little bit of a raw deal. It's underappreciated. I thought it was great. And I, I don't know why, you know, people love to compare Woody's movies to past movies or different. They, I don't know. Sometimes he's not judged in a in a fair way. But I just wonder, you know, back to you getting to getting the call that Woody's interested in and then doing it. What'd you make of all that?
1: It, it was a really interesting time. I, I had a... Really good experience on set and became very close, actually, to that cast, especially Magic in the Moonlight.
0: Yeah. Was it one of these things where, because you always hear about his auditions or, you know, you walk in and he's like barely looks up and then you're out. But I mean, you were going to be central to these movies, so I would assume it was a little more involved. No, no.
1: It was a very short meeting.
0: <laughs> it's such a yeah, d- that was that. Had you been prepped for that possibility? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I had been told. Yeah. But Nothing. he as as a can you pinpoint why particularly with women because nobody has ever directed more women to Oscar nominations and also just great performances what is it with you think it's in the writing or the directing with him
1: well he makes a movie every year
0: mm-hmm. that that helps you on your yeah
1: there's just there's a lot of projects right it'll help
0: your help your batting average yeah, yeah. okay so Birdman. In which you play Michael Keaton's rebellious daughter, I guess we could call her. Is that rebellious fair to say? Daughter. Yes. I think that's fair to okay. say. Okay. <laughs> so, that one, the way it was made, as most people know, it, it, I, I know it wasn't actually one continuous long shot, but they were very long takes and very specific, intricate mandates for the actors. And he was somebody who was the first to say that his he was still mastering his English. What was that like for you to be sort of obviously creative and you know you're you're there because you're you're talented and you're creative but you're also filling a particular need a very specific need that applies to the cinematographer and all these other things what how did you how did you feel doing that movie
1: well it definitely was very technically precise (laughs) we had a bit of time for rehearsal and we knew what our basic blocking was going to be but Nothing can really prepare you for on the day.
0: Yeah.
1: When you're sitting on a rooftop, you know, attached to a harness, right. and someone's coming behind you while the camera moves around and unhooks you from the harness so you can get down and, <laughs> you know, try to have some moment of connection with right. Edward Norton. <laughs> Nobody prepares you for that. That is not something that right. you learn. Right. right. Or at least I hadn't. Right. But then again, you know, as I mentioned, I wasn't very trained. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So maybe you do learn that in traditional drama school. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was something that. At first was horrifying, and I developed a bit of an eye twitch, (laughs) and by the end became addictive and super liberating, and I think fueled the excitement to do something eventually, which maybe you're leading to, Mm -hmm. but something like La La Land, Mm -hmm. because that sort of technical precision, for some reason, once it clicks into your body, you get to be very free within it and you don't really you know you're not thinking about what do I do with my hands
0: right (laughs) well one random thought that that comes back to me now from from when I was watching that movie is that you know I wouldn't be the first person to remark upon the fact you have unusually large eyes right (sighs) and and I wondered there you know people were trying to figure out what this movie was about everybody was trying to decipher you're up on the roof a lot of it Mm -hmm. um you know, the way it was described, perched up on the roof, all this stuff started to think like, did he give you subtextual direction there so that you understood? I mean, it may sound absolutely insane, but we're, I was thinking, you know, the, the daughter of Birdman is basically like a, a large bird? eyed bird perched up on the <laughs> roof. Not that I know what that would mean, but I just I couldn't help but think about he, like.
1: He did not mention that to me. I yeah. think Chivo did at one point admit to me that he had never shot a human being on that lens. Chivo is Emmanuel Lubezki, the cinematographer.
0: Was it ex- accentuating your eyes, or yeah, it, I think so. Yeah.
1: I think it was almost that kind of borderline fisheye sort yeah. of situation, <laughs> and he was so close to my face, right? So I think it did accentuate what's already there, which is you know just the sheer out of whackness of my right, facial cool. proportions. It's right, it's right. Yeah, I, that's an interesting. That's an interesting thought. I don't. Alejandro has never quite explained that to me. Yeah. If that was the intention,
0: I think <laughs> it might just be my you're insanity. A, you're but, a uh, real film you're, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, when you guys were doing this, though, just to remind people, it was sort of pre resurgence of Michael Keaton, pre, you know, now it's like, oh, Birdman, that's one best picture, just sort of take it for granted. Did you have any suspicion that it could be received as well as it ended up being, where you end up getting a nomination? The movie, as I say, wins picture and director and all of these, this, this just sort of massive acclaim.
1: I mean, no way in the sense of how it would be ultimately received, I think, awards wise. But when it came to the film itself, I mean, Alejandro, I was such a fan of and, and then Chivo is clearly incredibly brilliant. So the team behind it, I think, was comforting to do something so sort of ambitious and, and Different. Insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was it that's pretty much all you know. I started to, to realize that the you know, as time has gone on, I've started to realize that the the journey of it is really as far as you can get because yeah. there there is no way of knowing. You
0: can never predict. In the midst of promoting that movie, because I remember I was I was doing a Q&A in New York with you and the whole cast and, and Alejandro and you were kind of uh, a little anxious because you were just about to start on Broadway doing Cabaret. And you ended up doing that for three months, just over three months. And what was the root of that? Had you had any prior musical experience or inclinations or desires? And how did it even just come about?
1: I, growing up in in youth theater, loved doing musicals, but could not maintain my voice to save my life. (laughs) And as you can probably here no it's a it's, a, uh, it's, like, you know, it's, it's like... a yeah it's a it's an interesting operating system with my voice because <laughs> it it goes so quickly so i when i was do, when i was growing up and doing doing musicals mm-hmm. i just lost my voice all the time and it was i probably wasn't singing correctly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which i learned later on a bit more <laughs> how to sing a little bit more correctly right. although i would not call myself a, a singer singer but i always loved it I went and saw a lot of musicals and one of the musicals I saw was was the 98 production of Cabaret yeah. so With I Alan coming
0: right yeah so it's kind of
1: funny so it was it was something I had always wanted to do Sally Bowles I think was was the ultimate part to me right. I mean it's just the greatest I was I remember Rob Marshall telling me it's Hamlet for women right Sally right. Bowles is Hamlet right. for women and it really does feel like that you go through so much as that character and it's just, you go from complete joy to hurtling toward death, basically. Yeah. And it was it was fantastic to get the opportunity.
0: I was lucky enough to see you do it. And that was at Studio 54, where they transformed it into a cabaret, the Kit Kat, Kit Club. Kat Club. You've said that it was, quote, the single greatest experience, close quote, of your career, at least up to that point was it just outside
1: of hosting SNL? Yeah.
0: What's outside of yeah, well that's pretty great too I bet. Yeah. But with with uh with cabaret and you know the idea of I guess it was probably eight, eight shows a week you guys were doing or seven or eight but yeah, eight. eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it that makes that so appealing and you know I think a non-actor might hear that and they say you got to do the same thing eight times a week for 3 hours and you know doesn't it get boring or repetitive or whatever? Why is every actor who does theater they virtually all say that it's, it's, they, if they had to choose between theater and film, they would, they would choose the theater experience.
1: It, well, I think it's a couple things. One is the, the sense of doing it all together and the live audience and directing yourself. Um, all of which doesn't get to happen much on film. You, you really have to calibrate what's happening and, and be very present to the people around you. And the, Reaction changes every night, the feeling in the theater changes every night. And the second would be yes, when you're doing the same thing eight times a week, it does get boring and repetitive. And it's the difference between a long term relationship <laughs> and a short term relationship. It's like if you're into monogamy, right. you start to find, you're like, okay, this, you know, the, the theater experience is like a person you've been with for a very long time where you're like, all right, I gotta find all these things that are great about you. <laughs> And rediscover it and re-fall in love with you, and then, oh my god, today I've re- I see you for the first time, right. and and now I, you know, and it's it's I find that much more rewarding the the long term relationship yes. than the short term. But not to say that I find theater much more rewarding than film, because I actually I actually don't. I think that theater was I, I it would be very hard for me what you just said choosing theater over right. over film. I think that doing cabaret informed my next experience, which was La La Land. Right and the Battle of the Sexes, so much, it just changed me on a fundamental level of being less of a perfectionist, like I was describing earlier, because you cannot be perfect when you do a show eight times a week. You
0: screw up every single night, and then you get to do it again the next day. Had that also sort of been almost set up with Birdman, which is set in the theater, but basically the thing with with Birdman, I read about one instance where you maybe got most pissed of all times at Alejandro for being vague about what he wanted. And then when you just kind of let loose, it, it happened. Right? Yeah,
1: it was. I finally there was kind of a, a little breakthrough that happened on Birdman and he could see it right away. And I was like, you genius. <laughs> Damn you, you genius. He saw it right away, right. which is always a great feeling when a director can see what you're what you're doing right. and when you're bullshitting right. and what you're hiding. And he, he can. Yeah, I think I think that that process is so. I can't imagine not doing theater for the rest of time. So I, you'll it's go back and forth. I would truly hope so. Yeah. I would absolutely love to.
0: So it was while you were just getting your footing with cabaret that you first heard from Damien Chazelle.
1: Yes, How, during cabaret. What was he uh, came what's to see the
0: out, did you did you know him? What brought that about? Again, you're not somebody who prior to that had done much professionally in in the way of music, and yet he was presumably going there thinking about La La Land, right? I uh, apparently <laughs>
1: <laughs> he came and he saw the play with Justin Hurwitz, the composer mm-hmm. of La La Land and and I think the music supervisor and then we went and we got lunch and he told me about La La Land and he come to a performance of Cabaret that I thought was You know, one of my hundred worst (laughs) and (laughs) of, you know, 112 or whatever it was. Um, So he, I was relatively shocked that we were even talking. But yeah, so he, he, and he, I've switched the, I've switched my memory of it because I always thought he came after we talked, but apparently he came before and still wanted to talk to me, Mm. which is uh, (laughs) freaky. So we, we had lunch. He told me about, about La La Land and then I read it. And at that time, I think because I was so sick and probably on some version of steroids right, to maintain right. my voice, I was just really taken aback at the idea of doing a musical. Right, right. So the timing was actually strangely not great right. in that moment because you would think that doing a musical every night would, would draw you further into it.
0: So, was it actually an offer and was yours? not immediately a yes or like what was the what was the status of the con- at the time of the conversation it took us a couple months to figure out both of you it did yeah. yeah
1: because we talked a lot we met up a lot of times he he played the score for me he talked me through all the visuals of the film and it was just while I was doing the play and then it was birdman and whiplash kind of like january and oh, yeah. february we would Same see here, each other right? at yeah. these events and we would talk and kind of hang and and just be like all right well we got to talk again soon right. you know we got a lot to talk about it was very hard for me to conceptualize the tone of La La Land mm-hmm. at first because I really didn't – I didn't really understand how it could all be cohesive. And so I, well, I yeah. really did – he
0: was so patient with me. I really had about a billion questions for him. Well, because – yeah, I mean when was the last – what could he reference that would – Help you to understand what it would be. I mean, like umbrellas of Cherbourg. Yeah, right, I was right. like, well, that's a few years ago. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I,
1: you know, singing in the rain. Right. I'm not sure if boogie nights. Well, right. that's interesting. Like, right. It was just, you know, all these, all these kinds of, you know, amazing but lightly disconcerting yes. references. But he, Whiplash was fantastic, mm-hmm. and he was so fantastic and so open and honest and kind of instantly collaborative that it was, it, it became pretty easy to to trust him and and know that he was going to make his presentation. Yeah, (laughs) He had his presentation. Very good, very good.
0: Well, I mean, also, I'm wondering when you're reading the script for the first time and you're seeing the story of a girl with a dream who leaves her home and schleps all the way to Hollywood, perseveres through a few setbacks over a period of years, and then realizes her dream. I mean, I guess anyone that he might be talking to, most people that he might offer the role to could relate probably to that in some way. Absolutely. But for you, are you saying like, I, I do understand this person?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I, I do. <laughs> I do understand a lot of what Mia is going through. You know, I had, and we spoke about this at length through our rehearsal process and kind of working together on the character and developing, developing the character in some ways. I was 15, 16, 17 when this right. was going on. Mia is in her mid to late twenties as this is happening. And, That's a very different experience. It's one thing to be 15 and wide-eyed and know that you can still hopefully go off to college after all of this. And, you know, all your friends are still in high school. And isn't this cool that I get to audition and do this? But Mia's experience of of making ends meet and and the way she's working and all of that was, you know, it it was different, Mm -hmm. obviously, than my experience in that way.
0: When you signed on, was it concurrent with Ryan signing on or did you already know he was... On or had it or did you pre- precede him?
1: Ultimately, I had been talking to Damien for quite a while. Ryan sat down with Damien, I think, maybe to talk about the film they're doing now. They're about to do.
0: Which one is that?
1: For the first man, Neil Armstrong. You're project. gonna
0: let him go off without you? are Not gonna? We can't find a role in space for. Oh, for trust you? me.
1: <laughs> I have been very vocal yes. about
2: my <laughs> right. displeasure yes, with this setup. Yes, yes. It's the whole same
1: crew. <laughs> I do not feel good. No, <laughs> anyway, no, no. no, I'm very happy for yes, them. I know yes, they'll make a, yes. <laughs> an amazing movie. I'm very angry though. I feel very left out. I think he he sat down and, t- and spoke to him about that and something. It, somehow this came out, mm-hmm. and then we spoke to each other and yeah. And within the same
0: probably week so or you two, you and Ryan though consulted with each other. Are we crazy to do this or are we? Well, like,
1: I had no idea that he had spoken to Ryan, uh, so it was kind of a shocking turn of events. Okay,
0: so. The other thing that would be, I guess, really unusual about signing on to do La La Land is that there was a—normally, how much rehearsal do you have on a movie, if any? D- None. None, right? I mean,
1: for Birdman, we had three weeks, and we were right. like, that's astronomical. Right,
0: right. And, and that was probably largely technical, just mapping out how you're going to do it, right? Like,
1: Oh, but no, he's also seen stuff and, and, you know. With Birdman. Oh, yeah.
0: So now with La La Land, though, I guess at the outset, they must have said, like, we're gonna need three months of your time.
1: We wanted six.
0: Really? We wanted a year. <laughs> right. I
1: think one of the reasons that Damien probably felt okay with us in the, at the end of the day is that I think both Ryan and I were begging for more and more rehearsal wow. time. I mean, we really wanted to. Yeah. We wanted to go for
0: it for as long as possible. And those three months encompassed what?
1: Uh, learning to tap and ballroom dance, mm-hmm. singing lessons for me, mm-hmm. piano lessons for Ryan, a lot of scene. Work with Damien, a lot of character development,
0: which came out of your own experiences, often, right?
1: Yeah, the first audition in the movie is Ryan's experience. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very grateful to have gotten the opportunity to incorporate that into the movie, (laughs) and just a lot of, you know, we watched movies as a cast and crew.
0: What were these were like references that you should? be Well, Umbrellas
1: of Sherbrooke was our was our big one. That was I I hadn't seen it up until that point, and um, had seen bits of it because Damien had referenced it and. I, it was just so fun to see it projected onto a wall with all of us together eating pizza and, you know, having this kind of iconic cinematic experience together.
0: And I don't know if this was another one, uh, another sort of movie that he wanted you to see, but, you know, the, the idea of, of you guys being teamed for the third time in a movie when other past musicals had had. Astaire and Rogers or whoever recurrently yeah. were those ones that you also looked at. Top Hat was a yeah. big reference. Yeah. Isn't It a Lovely Day to Get Caught in the Rain was
1: was something that we were very kind of attached to for the Lovely Night
0: yes. sort of duet yes. on the hill. More so than, than Singing in the Rain.
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. There's you know singing in the rain was deeply inspiring it was very hard you know it, it's one thing with ginger rogers to look at her and go okay well she was dancing since she was a little girl right, right, right. she is a very professional dancer right. i'm not gonna throw myself you know against <laughs> ginger rogers but then i look at debbie reynolds and i hear she learned to dance for singing in the rain and i go damn it <laughs> debbie reynolds is the greatest that I cannot even, I mean, she learned to dance in a matter of weeks at 19 next to Gene Kelly. So I can't hold a candle to her. So watching that, you know, watching singing in the rain was more feeling bowled over than anything. I mean, I don't think we were going, well, we
0: got to match up right. to that, you know. But the other one that I wondered just about that, you know, what, what did you, how'd you describe it? The duet that's up there where you, where you're looking for your cars.
1: Yeah. Lovely night. Lovely night. Mm-hmm.
0: The way it was shot, and like many of the things in the movie, but particularly that one, was reminded me of, of the bandwagon, because the great thing they did there was they show your full body the whole time, because right. they don't want any question that there's a double doing your moves for you or whatever. Absolutely. And you guys had to do that, too.
1: That was something Damien was deeply attached to from the beginning, and he made very clear. And we went over to Patricia Kelly's house, who's Gene Kelly's widow, yeah. Ryan, Damien, uh, Mandy Moore, our choreographer, and and me. And, and I, sorry, <laughs> I don't know. I, God, I apologize <laughs> <laughs> to all of you at home who care about grammar for any mistakes I may have made. I just remember being at her house, having dinner, and she was talking about Gene, Jean, Jean, Kelly yeah. saying how important it was to shoot the entirety of a dancer's body mm-hmm. so that it's not, you know, chopped up in that way. And, yeah. and
0: like everything today is if you were to watch a music video or whatever. Well, yeah, I guess yeah. it just depends on what style you're going for, yeah.
1: but that yeah, that was that was That's deeply right. important to Damian.
0: As awesome as those complex numbers were to watch, I actually thought additionally, though some of the moments which I don't know how much improv was was encouraged on this movie, but and I don't know if this would have even been improv, but like there's a scene where the camera kind of comes in on you guys at the piano and you're singing, I guess it was a City of Stars, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it felt and like a lot of mo- moments, but that one in particular, watching it, I just feel like you guys almost weren't told the camera was on or something It just feels very natural and real. And so was there any degree of, of improv stuff in, or at least in the moment improv stuff in this movie?
1: There were, uh, I mean, Damien was, was definitely open to exploring a bit. We, for the most part, I would say that we improvised kind of together and would, would, would do that in the rehearsal room with Damien. He would sort of take what we had, we had done and find ways to sort of filter it into the dialogue if right. it helped that that kind of relationship unfold. But when it comes to like City of Stars, that was not you know that wasn't improvised. That was just the song, and that was just well, what we yeah. what we did yeah. in, the, in the one the
0: one shot. That's like your method. as time goes by, or you're hearing it throughout the film in yeah. just different ways and yeah. whatever. But the other song, in addition to City of Stars, that's nominated for the movie is Audition, which I think. I don't know if it, if you could have had a better moment to shine and, and capitalize on it than you did just to remind people, this is where your, your do or die last shot audition is, is happening. And you start saying about your aunt and it zoom, I guess it, zooms or or the camera itself moves in or whatever it was on he's you he's in a steadicam so steadicam he's, he's really he really? was Ari just walking toward me <laughs> past the, doesn't it go past the two people at the table though
1: yeah they split the they desk. split the table so there there are guys pulling the desk out and oh they're moving out God. of the way and then he walks towards me and spins around and then walks backwards and they put the desk back in and raise
0: the lights. And the, so the lights actually went down in yeah. the room.
1: I mean, it's all that's all in the camera. That everything you see is just the the one shot. Oh
0: my god! And there Which it was appears. the craziness
1: about that that desk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the desk was just the desk was a trip. What a yeah. <laughs> see um, the desk. So splitting. like when we're hearing you guys sing throughout the movie, I guess defining what live singing is might be helpful because in the audition song. I cannot see anything that would suggest that you weren't literally that that audio was not coming out of that mouth at that moment right that was live on the, on the scene yeah and probably in other times when you're dancing and having to sing you you loop it in or whatever yeah. later uh,
1: in a lovely night that was that was a pre-record because then we had to go straight into dancing I didn't actually have a mic on for that scene gotcha Yeah,
0: but like for the audition number where again I think it was the most impressive moment in the whole movie did that one give you any more Apprehension going into it than others? I mean, a bit. A little bit, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: That's kind of one of those days that sits on the schedule. Right. Really. And that still right. hasn't happened. Right, right. But it was, it was a really special day. The one thing that really still kind of sat with me on that day was knowing, because Justin Hurwitz was playing, or the composer was playing the music in my ear, in an earwig, from the other <laughs> room. So he was moving along with me with my voice. But I just realized... Everyone in this room is hearing me sing a cappella. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not a fun realization that they had to hear me sing this song over and over in a cappella. Like, oh and God. Because the you know, this, the orchestra. The orchestra
0: helps helps a well, little bit that. It was pretty that was pretty great. And you. were you just to touch on on the other ones that I'm sure you always get asked about, the opening sequence, I know you're part of it, but was it all actually shot? sort of like domino effect where we, the way we see it, where all these things are happening, or was it broken up in a way that you come in after the other stuff was actually done?
1: Yeah, we, our, our car, they panned down to our cars okay. after the, after the dance number was done. So okay. that was a movie. Yeah, that was a gotcha. stitch. And what to about move down to our cars? Uh,
0: technically again, just because I, I watched the movie now like five times and I always wonder, how did you guys do the Griffith Park floating scene which is so great as well
1: oh yeah that was i think the only thing that was on a set okay and it was just a recreation of the planetarium and they put us on harnesses and wires and they you know put the stars in against the blue screen that was pretty much we just sort of danced through the sky that's great yeah
0: and you had actually another fun fact i believe done a scene with ryan in a movie at griffith park observatory Yes. Prior to La La Land, yes. right? Gangster, was it Squad. Gangster Squad.
1: Our first day on Gangster Squad, which it was cut from the movie, cut,
0: right? <laughs> but we but it's had on this kind of yeah, yeah. We yeah. had
1: this kind of fun day at, at Griffith. We were both just so excited to be there, and the whole day Ryan was searching for James Dean's crowbar, which <laughs> we didn't know was foreshadowing. <laughs> right. You know, five years later in our lives, or four oh years gosh. later, we would have a whole section of a movie about Rebel Without a Cause.
0: It's it's such a great. Part of the movie, He's yeah.
1: convinced that the crowbar is down there. It's still there. It's still well, there the somewhere.
0: where the knife fight or whatever actually happens is is definitely still there cuz I w- I've gone and looked for that and that's you can match it up. The knives? Well, you know, you're not going to find the actual knives, but this <laughs> the spot, the exact spot where he and the actor Corey Allen, yeah they that you know, you can it hasn't changed that much in whatever. It's 60 so years. it's so yeah. cool. It's yeah. so
1: just to be it to be at Griffith yeah. Observatory is a really like. Oh, yeah. That never, the magic never oh, it's goes great, away. great date spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, when did you see the film for the first time?
1: I would say spring of this year.
0: In what sort of a set? It was or just 2016. Just like you and it's 2017. And now. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Uh,
1: spring of 2016. And when I first saw it, it didn't have traffic at the beginning.
0: The they had cut number. the traffic
1: number yes. at the beginning and about 15 minutes in the 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 roommate sequence began and they burst into song. and It was so startling because there had been no music or singing or dancing in the film up to that point. Right. It was just shocking. And I think they were <laughs> they were testing out, you know, because traffic is really the only number in the movie that isn't doesn't really further the the story. Right. So they were seeing, you know, maybe if all the songs are just something that kind of furthers the plot.
0: And had there been an overture or something at that point? Because I remember Damien saying at one point there was like three false starts. Or Originally,
1: something. there was a full on old fashioned overture with title cards and a sort of painting of a palm tree that the palm tree that you see in the end of the movie yeah, yeah. fading into a sunset and the nighttime and then back up to the morning and that kind of, you know, a very a very sort of classic right. title card
0: sequence with the overture. And then traffic. And then traffic. And then And I
1: think it was just those
0: well, ones. That, so he thought it was redundant to have two overtures.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, but I always loved that that That's title nice. card sequence idea. Yeah. But I think traffic's very important. Uh, so really, I, mean, <laughs> I think that ob- opening scene is very, very necessary. Well, you guys
0: opened the whole Golden Globes with with that. Mandy, I guess, did that for them, right? I mean, that, that, that blew me away. <laughs> so you saw it first with him, but then... When the movie actually had its official premiere, you were at Venice for that. Yeah. And was that where it was now in the form that we all see it? Was that a different experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, seeing it with an audience outside of just the crew of the movie who all were, you know, giving each other big hugs and had worked on this for right. six months.
0: You weren't getting an objective read.
1: Right. There, this was, a, this was a, very, a very different experience. Man, it was, that was a night I'll never forget.
0: A little emotional?
1: It was very emotional. It was also emotional because Ryan was in Budapest and wasn't there. And, you know, a bunch of us were there. And it was just it was such a bummer not to have him there. But we all just I mean, we were sweating because there was no air in the theater. (laughs) And so it was very hot as it as it was. But I reached over and grabbed Damien's hand after the audition number because my heart was, I mean, coming out of my mouth. I thought I was going to faint.
0: What were you what were you concerned about?
1: I don't know if I was concerned so much as it was a giant screen with a, with hundreds of people
0: comes me and I was and singing
1: and it was just a lot. Right. It was just a lot. Right. And after the number I reached over and I kind of, gra- I reached over Olivia, which t- t- I guess is now a, <laughs> a common occurrence. Right. Right. <laughs> and that was a, a gif, I guess, right. but I did, I reached over Olivia, I grabbed Damien's hand for a second and it was just pouring sweat. I mean, we were, we were just, you know,
0: beside ourselves. So first time Americans saw it was a Telluride, although they may have shown it to a few of us before, which was very exciting. <laughs> and the response ever since then here at home has been, you know, because maybe you could say, oh, Italians, they have their history with musicals or whoever else might, you know. But Americans who obviously in a, in a lot of ways invented the genre, but then have abandoned it for the most part in recent years, there there had to have been some question about, you know how they were going to how they were going to respond to it how we were going to respond to it and yet here we are i don't know how many weeks after it opened but it's we know the critics loved it we know audiences have loved it i think it's now well over 200 million worldwide at the box office which is unthinkable for a musical and we now know how the academy feels with with record tying 14 nominations including congratulations for you for best actress so what do you attribute this to why is it that at this time in our history in our culture whatever it is why are people so responsive to this movie
1: i mean i can't speak for everybody <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know specifically what the i can only speak for myself yeah. or what drew me to yeah. it which was reading it and and the experience and making it you know being in those in in that beautiful production design or or those costumes or dancing to those songs lifted me up but broke my heart. So there was the kind of combination that I I personally love most in film which is something that that brings you joy and can make you laugh and make you feel transported in a way but then has that that sort of smallness that that humanness that cuts cuts deep within within. That's how I felt mm-hmm. reading it. That's how the ending made me feel. I mean, I, I cried like a baby reading that ending in the script. And my favorite films have an ending that that stays with you for a while. And I think Damien really achieved that with this in the script. And it was it was trying to live up to that when we were making it. So that's how it affected me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what resonates with people. I think different parts can, can resonate. It's interesting talking to people because some people describe the film as this really joyous, like kind right. of feel-good thing. And some describe it as like very devastating and reminds them of love lost. And how can there, you know, be anything more painful than, you know, the one that got away. And it's so it's interesting to kind of to hear different perspectives. And it seems to be kind of a different experience for each person.
0: Well, the last question is just this. When a movie has been this well received and a performance this well received and all of that, how do you how do you follow it? What's next? I know there's another thing that you're very passionate about that's coming up so maybe just for let's pretend somebody somehow had not known about Emma Stone prior to La La Land and now is very anxious to see what's next what what might that be
1: well I did the battle of the sexes I mean there's no the it's just called battle of <laughs> the right, sexes the right. film I played Billie Jean King right. Steve Carell played Bobby Riggs and that was a hell of an experience that was right after La La Land
0: first time playing a real yes
1: person. first time playing a real person and Billie Jean King is a uh, quite a real person (laughs) quite a real person so that happened and and then I am yeah doing this this Yorgos Lanthimos
0: movie in a couple weeks are you a different actress than you were when you started La La Land is there something that you know what's it's what's it's we can all leave in? oh this is its impact on me or I like the different Mm -hmm. examples you were citing of people feeling one way or the other but for you ultimately how is what's the takeaway gonna be in the long run
1: I think I'm a different actress from every project I do. Right. There's something, you know, something changes each time or grows each time. And I hope that never yeah. ends because <laughs> right. I really need to keep growing. Yeah. <laughs> but I I think from, from La La Land, one of the great gifts that Damien gave me or gave us was I really do think everyone on that set felt very valued. And it was, it was an experience of collaboration that i had never had before. He was so open to so much sort of, you know, freedom. And there was so much openness to, to ideas and thoughts and mistakes and jokes and, you know, screw ups. He just had this sort of faith, but a very clear vision that he never lost sight of. And that was very inspiring to see. And I, and I would hope that, you know, that more things can can be that way yeah. so i definitely took that with me awesome
0: well thank you so much i love the movie love your stuff it's great I really thank appreciate you. it thank you for having me Absolutely. step into the world
1: of power loyalty